Chapter Twenty One. Tanner's stooping stepped through into the silent bedchamber and straightened up, her throat pricking with dust. She stood quite still, looking around the room at the shrouded furniture, the bulky chests, the tall bureau, the empty armstand holding the centre of the floor like an agonised schrucht. The place looked haunted as a gravelsack's hollow, so haunted that she all but started back the way she'd come. There, on that very spot where she now stood, Aravac had died in a pool of blood. She closed the glory hole panel behind her, tiptoed to the great bed, set the scrolls down, and kneeling, laid her head on the soft furs, stroking Torque's place, remembering. Enough. She had much to do and little time in which to do it. She moved to the window, glanced across and up to the darkened casements of the Queen's Tower, then edged the drapes shut, lit a lamp, set it on the bedside table, and curling her legs under her, leaned back on the cushions and opened the first scroll. One after another she read down the names, all written in the same strong, bold script. This was a roster of sorts that Gar had somehow come by, and somehow without Felix yet suspecting. But a roster of what? And by whose hand, Felix, it had to be? Name after name had dots beside them, with many crossed out as well. When she came to Baldard's and Bundrake's, she paused. Why the dots and why the lines? What did they mean? She glanced over the last page. Names only on that one. No sums of change yet. No dots, no lines. Names of treachers like Baldard and Bundrake, already like the others before them, to be bought by the promise of great wealth. Where could even Felix have come by such sums? She looked down the columns again, at the dots and the lines through the names. Of course. Those sums had never been delivered. For the poor wretches had been neatly disposed of when they'd done their stint, those dots marking their prescription, she'd stake her life on it. And the lines? She thought of the heads rotting out by the gate. When they were done, Felix simply crossed them off his list. Those ciphers were worth no more than the parchment they were written on. Clever, but not clever enough. Gar had those scrolls now, surely evidence enough to take to the king. So why had he not yet done so? Maybe 
Maybe he was on the brink of more, out there beyond the weald. So much for her boldness, meddling in affairs over her head. What should she do now? Why return those scrolls at once before she found herself in real trouble? She slipped from the bed, took up the scrolls, and carrying the lamp with her, left the chamber the way she'd come. She entered Gar's apartments just as before, slid the scrolls into the secret cavity back down beside a stack of other flat sheets. One of these she crumpled so badly that she took it out to smooth the creases with her fist. As she lifted it out, the bold clear script caught her eye. More of Ferric's work? Correspondence this time? Correspondence about proof? She looked to the signature over the page, then, dumbfounded, she reached for one of the scrolls. The writing was identical, and the hand, not Felix, but Gar's. How she got through that next day she never knew. The scrolls she'd taken out with her again resolved to go to the king. That resolve had lasted but to the foot of his tower. Once she stepped out into the open, there'd be no turning back. She needed time to think. She placed the scrolls once more in her dower chest and lay down to catch an hour's sleep before the dawn bell. She turned this way and that in the darkness, Gar. All this time he'd been working not against Ferric, but with him. And all this time she'd lain with him, even now borne his abomination inside her, on the brink of stirring to life. Oh, why didn't she go to Sharrock? Because she turned over. A rash act in this place could prove one's last. Oh, what to do? Giving up all idea of sleep, she lay on her back and tried to think. That afternoon even the Queen remarked on her pallor and sent her to lie down. She lay facing the door, listening to the faint sounds of chatter and laughter coming from the Queen's sitting-room. She thought of afternoons spent with her father, sunny afternoons in the scribal chamber, watching him bent over his high desk, watching and dreaming of a lady's life of love and harsilk and wine. Her head ached how many hours since she'd slept? She'd lost count. But she couldn't afford to now. 
not until she'd resolved the problem one way or the other. When she awoke, her transom was dark. She lit her lamp, wiped her face, dressed quickly and looked out. It was warmer. The wind had dropped and snow was on the way. The tower was silent, deserted. Everybody was at evening board. Well, that was good, for now she knew what to do. She pulled out the scrolls and all her secret treasures from her dark chest, bundled them up, put on her cloak, and went out. As she hurried through the darkness towards the great arch, the first flake fell. The bundle she stashed behind the dresser. Then she stoked up the stove and pulled up a footstool to watch the flecks of soot flare into life and fly foolishly up and out into the night. Presently she heard the sound of feet labouring up the stair. Hobbly showed no surprise at seeing her there, but only took off her droishan and shook off melted snow. "'Tis slippery out there already.' You just take care when you go out. Her eyes went from Tanner's face to her belly. You look ill, lady. It's not the child, I hope. She pulled up her rocker, sat, put her hands to the fire. Hobbly, I need your help. Tanner fetched the scrolls from behind the dresser and spread them out on the hearthrug between them, pinning them flat with small bowls from the dresser's shelves, for the first time catching the old woman surprised. She read out some names, tracing each with her finger, read off the sums beside them. Then she spoke of their meaning and Gar's treachery. Hobbley rocked back and forth, I knew it. I knew it, she said at last. Haven't I always called him a very shoofar, with cunning and venomous tooth? No one saw it. No one, no one saw it, not even his closest brother. I ask you, lady, where, where will it end? I thought to take the scrolls to the king. Hobbley shook her head. You'd never live to reach him. Then what? First, get those things back where they belong. Agreed. But first, since they're the only proof against those two, she jumped up again and brought out her writing tools onto the table. Hobbley asked no questions. Instead... She helped Tanner transfer the scrolls to the table, spread them out, and anchor them with the bowls, then pulled up a chair to watch while Tanner copied each one. Now I'll take these back, Tanner said. I just have time. But after that, then what, Hobbley? 
We must send word to His Highness Prince Talk, that's what, Hubbley said, helping Tanner on with her cloak. I know the very men, my sister's son and his boy. They work the morning shift in the kitchens, scrubbing pots. They'll not be missed. Then Tanner turned to the table. I'll write a note. No, no note. No mention of your name. Only a message. A greeting by word of mouth from an old nurse to her former charge. The full meaning of which only talk will understand. Such secret language did he and I have in the old days. And never gar. He'll have remembered it, I'm sure. As for those things, she nodded to the table. They'll stay here for safety. Now, let us be off. I shall stand by while you take those things back, then see you safely to bed. The old lady went to the door and reached down her dojan. But the risk, Hobbley, I can't let you. Tanner bundled the things up to take them to the door. Nonsense. You had the sense to come to me in the first place, didn't you? Anyway, tis not you I'm thinking of, but his highness's child. So put those things back where they belong and come. After a moment's hesitation, Tanner obeyed. Hobbley nodding threw her doorshan over her shoulders and tied it firmly under her chin. You know, she said, as Tanner walked to the door, I never dreamed a woman could learn to wield a pen. Your father must have been proud. The snows came and went, came and went again, and for some days Demiel shone brilliantly down from a cold, clear sky. Gar also came and went. For a few days after his return, Tan walked in fear that he'd noticed something. The creased parchment sheet, something. But he didn't. Only Tanner's changing shape. And not only God. The queen in the bath one morning looked hard and long at her. I see you with a child, girl. Yours, I suppose. Oh, no. So please, ma'am. No. The queen looked askance. Then whose? His highness Printorks, ma'am. Indeed. Prince Gar will not be at all pleased. The queen stepped out of the bath, the rest following, looking at Tanner with interest. The queen's toilet finished, Tanner went to her own room to attend to her own. Magla poked her head in. By Her Majesty's desire, she said, you are excused from royal attendance until further notice. She is confident that she'll have no trouble in finding other quarters as soon as possible. She also ordered me to inform you that in accordance with her promise to the Lady Folian, you have permission to remain within the protection of the Citadel for as long as you wish. Protection? 
Tanner raised her hairbrush to throw it after Magla, then subsided onto the bed. She and Magla and everyone else knew what that meant, that she was henceforth out of favour, but must stand by in case some gar had any further use for her. She got up, put on her cloak to go to Harbourley, sat down again. Hadn't she resolved to keep clear of her until talk was safely home? She slid her bed from the wall, traced her fingers along the scratches she'd made, ten to a bunch. Only one bunch left. Ten days, and then they'd all see. Maybe Hobbley had been right after all. When he came home and saw the scrolls, learned of the risks she'd taken for him, when she told him that she bore his child his first, to be recognised anyway, he'd be bound to take her back, wouldn't he? And that being the case, the Queen's crown might still be hers. If not, what were her chances in life? Out of favour with the royal dowager, the royal bastard coming to naught if unrecognised by its sire, where would that leave her? Finished as far as Gurniak was concerned. Enough. She slid the bed back. She must lie low. Only ten days to go until talk came back. Surely she could hold on till then. The days passed. Nine, eight, seven. On the next day, so Magla told Tanner, the king sent the escort to Asadun, a large escort, well armed for the heir's protection, though, as everyone was saying, what need would he have of that, coming back as he was, from room? On the next day, a weak, damp southerly blew in to unlock ice-bound ditch and eave. The citadel moats and the grey moraines along the sides of the road. Stagnant wastes, long festering under the ice seal, oozed, mixed, and evaporated into the humid air. Foul grey fog pressed down over the citadel, spread eastward, smothering traffic on the wheeled road. Tanner kept to her room, brushing her hair, oiling her skin, soaking at dawn in the bath's ghostly steam. She avoided going to board. Pleading indisposition, she had food brought to her room. If her spirits were low, she cheered herself by looking on the brighter side of things. At least Gar was still away, and what a relief it was not to dance at the whim of that wilful, spoiled old woman. But her isolation brought hardship and growing anxiety. 
how she missed Hobbley. Time and again she almost went to see her, but Hobbley was safer left alone. Four days before Talk's expected return, Magla and Leyland tapped on her door. You Pete, Tanner, Magla said. Come for a drive with us. The Queen's given us leave to see the decorations down in the city. Every building flies banners and victory wreaths, and there's to be a great fair. Isn't it exciting? Once in a lifetime it happens, and here we are. So up and out with you. It'll do you good. A fair. Memories of the Condish fairs and Durak filling her hands with sticky sweet meats, of jugglers and dancing dogs, and men walking across ropes strung up on high poles. The thought only saddened her. Thank you, but no, Tanner said. Anyway, she couldn't risk meeting the Queen or being out on public display. Suit yourself, Magla said over her shoulder. We thought you'd be glad, considering the show you put on when His Highness went away. On the day of Talk's arrival, Tana awoke with a headache. But even so, she forced herself down to bathe, to put on her best gown, loose-laced, and dress her hair elaborately atop her head. She took stock of herself in her glass. Her face was pale, her eyes dark-circled and puffy underneath. Face it, she'd lost her looks, not to mention her figure. How could talk want her now? She turned this way and that, eyeing herself, curling her mouth up at one corner. She put the glass down, covered her face. It didn't work. Not even the smile any more. Noise came from the passage outside. The Queen's laugh, the deep-throated one that she kept for talk and car. Then high-pitched Tharwinish, the Queen's daughters. Her Majesty was in a rare good mood. Finally, there was quiet. Everyone had gone to morning board. No menial came to see how she was. She dozed, awoke to the dimness of early afternoon. The track had talk returned already, and she there in bed. She opened her door a slit to find the hallway deserted. She slipped out and peered through the hall windows towards talk's wing. No, not yet. His standard still lay furled at the foot of his staff. There she cover herself and creep out, melt into the crowds. She could resist it no longer. She pulled her mantle over her 
threw a doishan about her face and went down the back stairs. Halfway she paused, breathless, dizzy. How many days since she'd gone out? Since she'd eaten a decent meal? The courtyard was empty. Everyone stood by the main moat watching for the outrider. A faint cheer came from far across the city, rolled over the distant masses like a wave towards the citadel. Talk! Did they see talk? She reached on tiptoe, trying to see. Presently, a high black thaw wrapped over the King's Strawbridge and under the great arch. He's gone, someone said behind Tanner, to present the prince's greetings to Sharok, a signal for the king to come down to the citadel door, and by that time the prince should be in sight. Tanner put her hand to her chest. She breathed deep, but fear and excitement had taken hold. She could feel the heat in her cheeks, the quickening in her blood. Minutes passed. No further cheers came from down below. Neither did the king appear. The crowd shifted restlessly. Streamers, released prematurely, drifted sadly down over the outer wall. Tanner leaned against a post. The air about her grew dim, became a rushing in her ears. She heard a cry, Give place, give place, then, here, make way, from a familiar voice somewhere overhead. Tanner looked up. She was lying on the cobbles amid a circle of faces, one of them Harbelish. Here, Harbelly pointed. You, bring the fellowella this way. Strong arms lifted Tanner and bore her out of the press. A guard with a gate insignia on his collar, one of Hawksmen, was carrying her over to Harbelly's apartment, Harbelly walking alongside. Tanner struggled to get down. No, she cried. I am all right. Let me go. That he'll not, Harbelly said. Lady, you are in no fit state to be standing out like this. Tanner, deliberately ignoring her, spoke directly to the guard. Put me down. I'll stand out here until His Highness is safely in the citadel. Then you'll stand alone, lady, Harbelly said, for he'll not come home this day. Didn't you see the rider bore no gonfalon? Come before the crowd breaks up. She took Tanner's wrist, gave it a quick shake. Go lie down, lady she muttered in Tanner's ear. "'Tis likely his highness is delayed by the fog.' "'I'll send to you when he arrives,' 
the dear old lovely old thing. Didn't she realize what a risk she was taking, speaking to her? Ignoring her, Tanner looked up into the guard's face. Take me to the Queen's Tower. Only when the guard moved away did she acknowledge Harbelly's existence. I thank you for your kindness, mother, she called over his shoulder, and bid you good day. At Tanner's command, the guard set her down at the foot of the deserted tower stairs, saluted, and marched quickly back the way they'd come. One step at a time, Tanner climbed back to her room. What did it mean? That talk had not yet arrived. The light was fading. Way past the hour for men to be within city gates in those uncertain times, especially the precious Gurniard air. She thought of the scrolls, the names bought for gold. To do what? To bring down the name of Gurniard? No, rather to create chaos. And in that chaos, who knows but what Sherlock might not fall? And his heir? And who would then be king? She went to the door, wrenched it open, and ran out. What better chance would treason have to dispatch the Gnangar heir than on his journey home from Rome? But yet... Hadn't Hobbley sent him timely warning? Talk was more than a match for any motley misbegotten Scots that Gar could send against him. No. The folk had simply hindered him, as Hobbley had said. And she was but giving in to womanish fears. She went back into her room and closed the door behind her. She held her shaking hands before her face. Hungry. She had eaten nothing all day, and would not for a while yet, with everyone still outside. She lay down on her bed, despite the loose combs in her hair, the gown creasing under her, and closed her eyes, listening for the sounds of returning feet. When she awoke, it was dark. How long had she slept? She raised her head. The tower was silent, still. It couldn't be night, could it? She sat up, her head spinning with a sudden movement. Then she realized what had woken her. Smoke. She smelled smoke. She ran to the door. She took a deep breath to shout. Choked. The passage was full of it. She ran back into her room, took up her washcloth, soaked it in water, 
put it over her face and opened her mouth to shout again, just as a strange light erupted through the passage windows, and a loud wild bell sounded toxin over her voice. The king's tower was afire. She ran, hammered on the first door she came to, then the next and the next, and in minutes the space was crammed with shrieking women, all pushing and fighting to reach the tower stairs. But the stairs were already alight. They turned away, stampeded back towards the aerial walkway leading to the king's tower, bearing Tanner along with them. No! Tanner struggled against the tide. The king's tower is alight! No one heeded her. Instead, they trampled past her to the royal sitting room, burst through the doors. Tanner backed away, watched figures, among them Magla, flying into the burning chamber, saw the queen, her hair in papers, start from her bed, saw her run with the others through the far door onto the aerial walkway, just as it gave way with a roar and cracking of timbers, leaving ragged darkness shot with sparks and falling brands. Tanner laboured for breath. Her eyes streamed, her throat, her chest were raw. She retreated along the back passage to her room, re-soaked the napkin, then seizing up her mantle, she emptied the rest of the water over it, threw it over her shoulders, and pulled the hood over her head. Bent low, she ran through the billowing smoke towards the burning stairs. She started down, crying out at the river of heat, fixing her mind on the next step, and the next, and the next, all but tripping over a body lying face down athwart her path, its clothes alight. Oh, the triac! The smell! She steadied herself, moved on, headlong down. How much farther! All those times she'd used the stairs and never counted them. Surely she was through by now. There came more cracking, loud and long, then a rumble, and all about her was falling, blazing wood. Something hit the side of her face, and she went down.